Retirement Blues Goodbye, along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path, a book by Richard Cowley. Chapter 13, Episode 2 Peter and I had a picnic lunch in the graveyard surrounding St Mary's Church in the tiny village of Bolton-on-Swale. We chose the cemetery to pay homage to Henry Jenkins, for whom an impressive monument had been erected. Henry was born in Ellerton-on-Swale in 1500 and didn't lose his white-knuckled grip on life until 1670. You're right, Henry was a super-codger who, it's claimed, lived for 169 years. Had Henry lived in modern times and was 169 years of age whilst we were eating sandwiches at his monument, he'd have received his 100th birthday congratulations from Buckingham Palace in the 1930s. It would be a rare thing indeed. A limited edition telegram from the here today, gone tomorrow king, Edward VIII. The countryside was flat and sectioned into huge fields. Large paddocks require fewer hedgerows than the same area divided into smaller meadows. Fewer meadows result in less birds and wildlife. If the profit-driven trend towards prairie farming is permitted to continue, wildlife will become scarcer and all our lives will be the less for it. Bee colonies have been dying out in alarming numbers right across the Northern Hemisphere. Many believe the loss of hedgerows and flowering plants account for their declining numbers. A German scientist believes the radiation from cell phones may interfere with bees' navigational system and so contribute to the dieback in their numbers. Perhaps the most widely accepted reason for the decimation of honeybee colonies is an infestation of parasitic mites. It's worth remembering that without bees, the world would suffer a catastrophic famine of such magnitude that the Black Death would seem like a Sunday school picnic by comparison. Most of the farms we crossed possessed enormous tractors with enough power to heave down the walls of Richmond Castle. The tractors looked fearfully expensive, with tyres and livery still sporting their showroom sheen. It's difficult to understand why some farms, particularly rough country sheep farms, had such powerful and expensive machinery. It's the spoils of EU subsidies, joked Peter. A magnificent hedge grove of blackthorn edged a field of newly sprouting winter crop that smelt like turnip or kale. The thorny shrubs were bowed down beneath a bumper crop of lustrous bluish-black snowberries. During the summer in the Isle of Man, I'd scanned every blackthorn bush for berries. In all those months, I'd seen no more than a handful of unripe fruit. I've been trying to find a crop for an old friend who makes slow gin. Dennis's hobby is not limited to flavouring spirits. He also ferments a wide variety of homemade fruit wines. In pursuit of his hobby, I have little doubt he's managed to blend substances previously unknown to man. I suspect that on occasion his fishing boat is fueled by dodgy vintages with an alcohol content so high that it makes deadly Kentucky moonshine seem like an energising health drink. Dennis embarks on an heroic bout of winemaking whenever there's a glut of fruit. Occasionally, the hubbub in his lounge makes it difficult to hold a conversation. The coal fire keeps the temperature just right for fermenting concoctions of vitamin-rich rose hips gathered from a cliff-edged path or damsons bartered wholesale. The law of horizontal certainty is alive and well in that room. All flat surfaces, the floor, sideboard, Top of the radiogram lid are parade grounds for wheezing demijohns. 
the crested glass airlocks of the regimental pipe band belch forth Stravinsky-like asthmatic pieces as accompaniment to the slurred conversation of those appraising the previous year's vintage. Along the way, Peter and I had a wonderful experience that revealed the degree of trust domestic cattle extend to humans. A herd of cows grazed quietly in a field. In a secluded corner, a slightly groggy and bewildered beast stood next to the path. It watched over a calf lying on the grass trying to raise its head. Both animals were exhausted and bloodied. Clearly, the cow had given birth to the calf only moments before. We stood quietly by and watched the calf scrambling to raise itself. Eventually it managed to stand on thin shaky legs and took its first faltering steps towards the cow. Over the years I've spent a good deal of time working with cattle and have developed a great affection for them. I felt extremely privileged to have witnessed the newborn calf standing and suckling for the first time. Later the weather changed. Rain was close at Danby Whisk. The scurrying couple, cradling near full pints outside the white swan, boded well for shelter and refreshment. "'The towels have gone up,' the man shouted, with a little more enthusiasm than was necessary. "'And they don't come off till 7.30 tonight,' his partner continued, with just a modicum of sarcastic smugness etched into her mouth. Neither Peter nor I uttered a word in response. We merely level-eyed one another with weary resignation. The injustice of allowing the pushy, self-satisfied duo to swig pints while our deserving restraint went unrewarded was an awful thing to behold. The mood of victimized rejection sat even heavier when a chill drizzle settled in. It crossed my mind that Wainwright's jaundiced view of Danby Whisk may well have been well considered. Wainwright was a fells man, at home in the high country. Danby Whisk, at 110 feet above sea level, is the lowest settlement on the trail. Both Wainwright's and our brief experience are summed up in his famous adage, You can't even get a bag of crisps in Danby Whisk's. There was nothing to be done other than seek shelter in our digs, which were nearby. Our spirited door-knocking went unanswered. A barrage of thumping provoked no response. The modified pile was empty and silent, no body at home. There was no evidence of hospitality in Danby Whisk. The inn locked customers out and our digs were deserted. On that drizzly Saturday afternoon, desperate measures were called for. We struggled into our wet weather gear and sought sanctuary in the local church and graveyard. After an hour studying mouldering headstones and breathing musty church air, we returned to the digs and were relieved to find evidence of habitation. Our backpacks had been removed from the sheltered nook in which we'd hidden them. Either they'd been stolen or taken inside. This time, our demand for entry stirred a response. Two cheery figures emerged from the back of the house through the arched coach entrance. Hugh, and a rather frail individual in his fifties, stood in the sheltered passageway. Their expectant demeanour suggested applause was in order. The waifish creature, whose parts appeared to be held in place by an oversized woollen cardigan, was our fuss-pot landlord. They beamed at us in a peculiarly knowing way, as though in possession of a shared secret they had at our expense. Perhaps they'd been hiding behind the lace curtains when we'd first arrived and chosen to ignore our knocking, leaving us outside wet and wretched. 
I pictured them, struggling to stifle their laughter as we trudged through the drizzle to seek shelter in the dismal church. I'm sorry I didn't welcome you earlier, our delicate host apologised. I was working on the paying guest shower and didn't hear you. When you arrived, I knew somebody was about because of the backpacks, he continued, before making off back the way he'd come. Round the back, man, shouted Hugh, legging it out of sight. My bedroom was clean and airy, although the communal bathroom was still suffering war damage. The sink and lavatory worked well. Unfortunately, the paying guest's shower was a work in progress. Where to use the shower in the landlord's ensuite, Hugh informed us. In a different setting, the landlord's bathroom could well have been a deified site for the ritual cleansing of Scientologist acolytes. As for the shower, it could have been a collector's item or the centrepiece in a plumber's museum. The gastring-style showerhead was concealed within a circular plastic curtain that hung above the bathtub in the middle of a spacious room. The contraption was fired up by following a complicated sequence involving switches and string. Somehow I survived the ordeal and emerged revived and ready for refreshments. As arranged, the landlord served plunger coffee in the Egyptian nook on the landing at the top of the stairs. He turned the simple process of serving coffee into a studied rigmarole during which he assailed us with a ceaseless flood of mindless prattle. The density of his patronising performance suggested we were in the presence of a poor listener. As the afternoon progressed, I gained the uncomfortable feeling that hikers, without transport, were regarded as captive clientele by some in Danby Whisk. Without consultation, our landlord had booked us into the White Swan for dinner. That's no good, Colleen complained. If the pub doesn't open till 7.30, heaven knows what time we'll eat. There are three taverns within a few miles of Danby Whisk. The first was in darkness. It appeared to have been long abandoned as a local watering hole. If it was operational, it could only be as a sly grog outlet. The next pub was warm and inviting, with staff busily preparing for the evening trade. The bar didn't open till 6.30, and they refused to serve aperitifs till that time. I was beginning to believe we'd stumbled upon an enclave of abstemious Yorkshire wowsers, in a countryside awash with quality bitter. We struck gold at the third establishment, where we were greeted like old friends. It was bright and abuzz with Saturday night possibilities. The whole company was in high spirits. The local cricket team, who sang in the crowded public bar, had just won the league trophy for the first time in living memory. The raucous hubbub was understandable, for the flavour and pure amber glow of the Spitfire Bitter was enough to tempt mouldering Henry Jenkins to rise from his crypt where he'd been ruminating since 1670. The menu showed flair and imagination. We all chose pheasant, but were let down as their supply had run out and the new hunting season hadn't yet kicked in. However, we weren't disappointed. The steak pie and the chicken breast in Stilton sauce were something of which even Fanny Craddock would have been justly proud. The food and drink and our host's hospitality were a welcome diversion from the constraints of Danby Whist. Before retiring, we dropped into the White Swan for a nightcap. A dozen or so hikers were huddled together in an isolated corner, and only then were they being served dinner. We joined Hugh, who as usual was sitting alone updating his journal. As we drank and chatted, his dinner arrived, and thank goodness we'd eaten elsewhere. 
he chanced his hand on a local dish, and what arrived was decidedly unappetizing. The giant Yorkshire pudding resembled an elephant's ear sculpted from curly batter that oozed waxy gravy. He'd been sucked into a culinary black hole when compared with the sweated garlic haven he'd feasted on in Richmond. We sympathized and left. Back at the digs, all was dark and empty. From far off, the hum of a television was more sensed than heard. Faint canned laughter were as close as we got to entertainment, for there was neither wireless nor television for the paying guests. Our domain was slumber, and no snoring, please. 